If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. A few years ago, the second segment of my middle finger and my left hand started to itch. And within a couple of hours, there was a little pimple there. Nothing major. I thought maybe an ingrown hair. I woke up the next morning. It was the size of a split pea. And three days later, it was oozing with green pus and I could see down to the bone. It was a flesh-eating bacteria. I was able to save my finger. Actually, the doctor was able to save my finger, thankfully. And I'm sorry if that made your morning bun or your evening supper or your late-night snack in London uh, settle on your stomach a little lopsided. But the point is that that is what Marxism has done to our universities. It's been 74 years since William F. Buckley wrote God and Man at Yale, which was a scathing critique by a recent graduate of the humanities departments, particularly the English and the School of Divinity, English department and the School of Divinity at Yale, for pushing Marxism, for pushing communism, very much at the peak of the Cold War. Buckley was right then, and things have only gotten worse with the French existentialist thinkers, the postmodernists in the 1960s, the 60s radicals. What we are seeing today is the fruit from the trees that were planted as seeds 60 years ago. It's taken a long time. They play the long game. While we're worried about doing our jobs well and maybe getting a promotion at work to be able to afford a vacation and bring up our children upright and true and hopefully put aside something for college and for retirement, they have been working to undermine America, undermine all her cultural and political institutions. They've infiltrated every segment of society. It's not just the universities. It's the churches, it's the town halls, it's the boards of education particularly. They're everywhere. They're like an infection. And like an infection, they need to be eradicated. Not the people, not the people, but the ideology. It needs to be burnt out. I asked a friend of mine last night on the phone, do you know what a fever is? And he said, yeah, it's caused by a virus. I said, no, the fever is the body's reaction to the virus. The fever is the body elevating its temperature to the point at which the virus can no longer replicate, thereby burning out the virus. And that's why when we say the fever has broken, the job's done. When the viral load gets to a point where the immune system can once again handle it and not be overrun, the fever breaks, your temperature declines, and you feel a lot better. That's what we need. We need a cultural fever to burn out this virus of Marxism. And it is everywhere. I'm picking on the universities because that's the boil where it's been festering, just like my middle finger, below the surface before it erupts and before there's total corruption down to the bone. Article today, the University of Washington, whose Huskies just played the national championship football game last week, is forcing white personnel to explain how they're working every day to stop the killing of black people. 
Well, the correct answer is, of course, is I'm working to stop black on black gang violence because black people aren't killed primarily by cops. In fact, more white people by per capita are killed by police every year than blacks. You wouldn't know that from the protests. We typically don't go and burn down our neighborhoods. And when a police officer kills a white person, they do because it's not about the black person's life. You know, the gentle giant wasn't. Hands up, don't shoot was a lie. I can't breathe, although not a lie, wasn't what led to the death of Mr. Floyd. The lie is the tool. They don't see it as a lie. They just see it as a tool. By any means necessary, it's the most utilitarian of philosophies. It literally means by any means necessary. They don't care. They have no morals. They have no moral compass. They have no scruples. It's literally a utilitarian philosophy where whatever works, that's what we need to do. And like a, an abusive spouse, they always blame the victim. Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. You voted to put a black man who was guilty of a horrendous crime in prison. And you forced me, you forced me to burn down my neighborhood. How dare you? It's time to stop this nonsense. It's time for the people at the white employees at the University of Washington to either refuse to answer the question or to say what I said, that they're working to stop black on black gang violence, the number one leading cause of death in the black community. You know who's not buying all this CRT, critical race theory, and all this diversity, equity, inclusion? Good, honest, hardworking, patriotic black people. They've had enough of it, which is why in numbers greater than for any Republican since Abraham Lincoln, they're supporting Donald Trump. I'm Timothy Shea. This is The Reckoning. At TNT, we never go home. We're committed to bringing you our take on the biggest topics of our time. We broadcast live 24-7 online globally, no matter what. We've got you covered on today's news talk, TNT. Connecting the dots, painting the bigger picture. They always have great conversation. Today's news talk radio, TNT. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, is seeking to persuade a federal court to dismiss a lawsuit challenging its repeated advisories against using ivermectin to treat COVID-19, which we now know was one of the most effective treatments. Here with the story, joining me now is TNT News producer Adam Clark, a.k.a. Ruckus. Thanks, Timothy. Uh, so, yeah, I guess the FDA is afraid of a fair fight or something, yeah? Uh, in a sealed motion, uh, the FDA asked the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas to dismiss the suit, which was brought by three doctors who alleged that the FDA's warnings were illegal. The late 2023 motion was sealed because exhibits the government cited, quote, include confidential information, end quote, from a separate legal proceeding, according to a government brief. What are they hiding? Uh, government lawyers said they would file redacted versions of the motion for public perusal, but still have not done so. Attorneys for the doctors said on January 12th that the court should reject the government's fresh bid to throw out the case. They write, quote, the FDA 
exceeded its authority by repeatedly issuing public directives not to use ivermectin for COVID-19, even though the drug remains fully approved for human use, end quote. One of the directives said, quote, you are not a horse. Stop it with the hashtag ivermectin. It's not authorized for treating hashtag COVID, end quote. Ah, yes, I remember those. The government motion came after an appeals court found that the FDA likely overstepped its authority with the warnings. U.S. Circuit Judge Don Willett, an appointee of former President Donald Trump, wrote in the ruling, quote, FDA can inform, but it has identified no authority allowing it to recommend consumers stop taking medicine, end quote. The appeals court remanded the case back to U.S. District Judge Jeffrey Brown, who said in 2022 that the doctors failed to prove their allegations. The FDA in the sealed motion asked Judge Brown, Judge Brown, another appointee of Trump, to dismiss the case. According to lawyers for the doctors, the FDA's motion includes the argument that the plaintiffs have not suffered injuries that are traceable to the FDA and that cannot be remedied by a ruling in favor of the plaintiffs. The lawyers said, quote, the FDA is wrong. Plaintiffs have suffered interference with their practice of medicine and the doctor-patient relationship, economic harm, reputational harm, and increased exposure to malpractice liability and have been subject to disciplinary proceedings and forced resignations all of which clearly traced to the FDA's campaign against ivermectin and would be remedied by equitable relief, end quote. The uh, Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act enables the FDA to authorize or approve drugs for a specific use, but doctors are free to prescribe cleared drugs for other purposes in what's known as quote-unquote off-label prescribing. The law does not grant authority to the FDA to regulate off-label use. The plaintiffs include Dr. Robert Apter, who was investigated by medical boards in two states for prescribing ivermectin to treat COVID. The referrals to the boards include some of the FDA's warnings against the drug as a COVID-19 treatment. The FDA's position in seeking a dismissal stems in part from the negative actions against the plaintiffs being taken being taken by third parties such as pharmacies, according to a description of the sealed motion. It was quoted as saying that the referrals, quote, are not fairly traceable, end quote, to the FDA's statements. An exhibit included by the FDA, however, showed that one of the referrals came from a pharmacist who cited FDA documents as a reason for, quote, increased scrutiny, end quote, with regard to ivermectin prescriptions. The pharmacist wrote that Dr. Apter would not provide a quote-unquote valid medical reason for the ivermectin prescription and was thus engaging in quote inappropriate prescribing, end quote. So silly. The plaintiff's lawyers said, quote, the FDA is the common thread through all of the plaintiff's injuries, which began only after the FDA embarked on its campaign to stop the use of ivermectin for COVID-19 and which often involve explicit invocation of the FDA's directives and recommendations, end quote. 
therein lies the problem, Timothy. A lot of folks out there took recommendations as the gospel law, and here we are today, right? What do you think about this one? Is the FDA going to well, dodge their responsibility or no? I, I hope not. So much to unpack here. First, with regard to your first question, what are they hiding? Well, the answer, of course, is the truth. That's what they do. This is why I admire the left. They do what they're going to do, and they worry about consequences later. And usually there are no consequences. They're like Cartman on his big wheel. I keep referencing this, but they're riding around town on their big wheel, pulling people over and saying, you will respect my authority. And uh, instead of laughing at the fat boy, like the adults on South Park do, everybody in this society went, okay. Particularly the corporate pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, others handed down a directive to their pharmacists. Now, the corporation isn't regulated by state governments. It is, but it's the pharmacists that are licensed. The corporation is only licensed by virtue of its pharmacist license. It's the pharmacist that bears the responsibility. The pharmacist can't say, well, I was just following corporate directives. That should not be allowed. And here's the problem. We don't live in a black and white world. We live in a world with 254 shades of gray. And pharmacists play a critical role because sometimes doctors get it wrong. Sometimes they get the dosage wrong. Sometimes they misprescribe the drug. They meant to prescribe drug A, but they wrote down drug B by mistake. And there's computer software now at the pharmacist to know that if you're taking a blood pressure medicine and the doctor prescribes this and there's a negative interaction, the pharmacist is the safeguard for us against physician error. So you can't just say the pharmacists have to do whatever the doctors want them to do because we don't want pharmacists to do that. We want them to exercise their independent judgment, but they can't substitute their judgment for the judgment of the physician. They can call out a physician mistake, but they can't substitute their decision. They can't say, oh, well, this doctor recommended this drug, but I think this drug is better and, and go ahead and fill a prescription for the drug that they think is better. That's not permitted. Also not permitted is not to fill a valid prescription. Guess what else was off-label? Viagra. Viagra was a blood pressure medicine. <laughs> Just doing the blood pressure study, guys kept reporting, oh, by the way, doc, there's this uh, side effect. I'm not too worried about it. It's kind of uh, kind of pleasant. And that's how they discovered the commercially greatest use for the blood pressure medicine, Sidenafil. Okay, so that was off-label. We have hundreds, if not thousands of drugs that are used off-label. Off-label doesn't mean wrong. It doesn't mean dangerous. You know, the whole lie, every single person that told the lie about horse paste needs to be horse whipped. And I mean in the public square, the way they do it in Indonesia. We get a few people out there and horsewhip them for telling what they knew to be lies, because here was a drug that won the Nobel Prize for medicine and physiology for human use. And they're out there characterizing it as horse, horse paste while they're filling prescriptions for remdesivir, which killed people, while they administered mod RNA injections, which have killed people, and not just a few, but hundreds of thousands and they wouldn't fill a prescription for what has turned out to be the most effective 
early intervention, it's criminal and it needs to be treated criminally. And hopefully this, this all goes within the field of administrative law. So it's not just this ruling against FDA in particular that's important, although it is. It's within the constellation of administrative law, the recent decision against EPA. If we get a decision against FDA, that'll be great. If we get a decision against CDC, that'll be great. The Supreme Court needs to rein in these out of control executive agencies. Yeah, and it's quite telling that the FDA has to attempt to pressure multiple times um, the court system to just say, hey, don't don't look at this case, whatever you do. I mean, they, they clearly don't want public uh, the public sphere asking the right kind of questions because this leads to the, the motivation. Why would the FDA do this? Oh, maybe they're exactly. in bed with big pharma, perhaps. You, right. And which gets us back to Bobby Kennedy's regulatory capture issue, which he's 100 percent correct on. You know what I say, Adam? I say since FBI and the U.S. Marshals are are so incapable of finding out who among 18 law clerks leaked the Dobbs decision before it was handed down, I would say if I were involved in that court in some way that go ahead, release this. Apparently, there aren't going to be any consequences, Adam. Thanks for another great earlier. story. You're listening to The Reckoning on TNT. TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. 13 Israeli hostages released uh, as part of that ceasefire deal uh, 49 days after they were taken hostage. 49 days. So that still leaves about 225 to 227 more hostages. Uh, I'm with John Bolton, the former national security advisor to Donald Trump. I'm with Britt Hume of, uh, of Fox News. I'm with a bunch of other people who say this gives Hamas too much time to do whatever they want to do, to do whatever they need to do, to regroup, to rearm, to re-strategize. And as much as you want the hostages back, it can't be at the expense of the other part of the mission, which is to destroy Hamas. So I think it's a mistake. Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. It sounds pretty good. It's it like, sounds real, it's dude. Not bad, huh? This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Alan Myers is one of our MAGA Institute heroes. He's somebody that saw something wrong and did something about it. He got up off his couch, rolled up his sleeves, and got to work. He's president of the Rhode Island Chairs Caucus, which makes him the chair of chairs. And he has done phenomenal work in a very short period of time with the Rhode Island GOP. It's my great pleasure to welcome back to The Reckoning, Alan Myers. Hey, Tim. Once again, greeting from behind enemy lines. Exactly, right? We're, we're yeah. brothers in different foxholes here. Exactly it. Yes, it is. How are you tonight? Yep. Happy Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Day. The left yeah. seems to love the doctor, but they hate to call him the Reverend Doctor. I wonder why that is. They hate it when you call him a Republican, too. 
That's right. And <laughs> forget you know, that. And he referenced he not only referenced uh, Moses, he referenced uh, St. Augustine and he referenced St. Thomas Aquinas. Even though he was a Baptist minister, he was well familiar right. with our Catholic saints and our, our Catholic theology. And yes, he argued right. that a, a person of faith has no moral obligation to obey an unjust law because they asked him, Dr. King, you're telling people that they have to support the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education law and integrate the schools. And yet at the same time, you're violating the law with your protest. How is that consistent? He said, well, it's consistent because one law is valid and just and the other laws aren't. And we have yes. no moral obligation. And he's citing back to St. Augustine and that an unjust law is a nothing. And St. Thomas Aquinas, which right. had, who uh, gave us great scholarship on uh, not only the just law theory, but just war and, and how exactly. we, if something's not just, we have no obligation morally to support it. There's a right. political penalty to pay, and that's why he was happy to go to jail. Where to eschew evil where it stands. I mean, that's biblical. Without turning it into a Bible study, we can also look at Romans 13, where we're to obey authority. But if that authority, all authority is based on the principle that God institutes government amongst men to do good and eschew evil. When that is flipped, so is the responsibility. So, and that's so really where we are today. We've got people that have infiltrated our courts, infiltrated our executive branch, our legislative branch, and they're using these structures of government to do ill toward the populace. That's right. That's that's exactly right. And we see it every single day. And what's ironic here on Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Day is, as I said in my opening tonight, the people that are really coming out against CRT, critical race theory, and DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, right. are black people. Good, patriotic, hardworking black people that just want to raise their families in a country that isn't persecuting them. And they're looking at what's being done to their neighborhoods, to their families, and they're saying, oh, hell no. Particularly the people out in Queens where the high school students have been sent home to learn over a computer while illegals have the run of the school that amazing you see you know one of the things i talked about last year when i ran for senate in rhode island was the ability for inner city people to have the same rights and privileges in choosing school school choice that we do out in the suburbs and they mm -hmm. looked at me like i was crazy and i and i said well, why were you against the inner city people having the same opportunities we are we have it, it, it's ridiculous. And so basically what they're doing is they're paying taxes for their, for their children to get educated. Meanwhile, that money is being funneled into illegal aliens and their children are being told to stay home. Many of them uh, in the inner city don't even have the, uh, the means to actually study properly at home, computers, laptops, all the various other things. And so they're just their money is going right out the window. It's it's ridiculous. I can't see how they take it, but I see they are protesting back, which is good. I'm I'm glad to see that they are finally realizing exactly who the Democrats represent. Exactly, and it's refreshing, Alan. I've been involved in politics since I was six years old. My first campaign was out leafleting with my dad in 1968, and I've been <laughs> waiting over 50 years for Black America to wake up, realize 
the soft racism of low expectations, as my Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan put it, realized the racist history of the Democrats with slavery, Jim Crow and the KKK, and, and to wake up and realize that not, not that Republicans are the be all and end all, because they've been, they've been a thorn in our side as well, the establishment, but that their interests are better served by a party that advocates individual liberty and individual responsibility than a party that says you can't succeed without us, which I think is the epitome of racism. It, it absolutely is. But here we are every single day. We see. You're listening to The Reckoning on TNT Radio. Here we go again. All right, let's go. go. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. Ukrainian leadership is meeting with officials in Switzerland today to organize a global peace summit, which Kiev hopes will build support for its defense against Russia. In a statement released on Sunday, Senator Marco Rubio formally endorsed former President Donald Trump for the presidency. Thousands of tractors clogged the streets of Berlin on Monday as German farmers staged a major rally to protest against agricultural policy changes planned by Chancellor Olaf Scholz's cabinet. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24 7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk this is TNT Radio. Alan, you're really in an unique position in Rhode Island. It being such a small state and with the Republican Party in the minority, you've got a lot of ability to make a big difference in a short period of time. And that's exactly what you've done. One of the things you've done that I like the most is how you've outthought the Democrats on the petition signature gathering process. Why don't you tell people what chicanery the Democrats pulled this year? with getting petition signatures in for the various candidates so that they could appear on the primary ballot in Rhode Island? Well, it started this year when the petitions came out early. We have our delegate petitions, which are coming at the end of the month for uh, Republican delegates. And so they decided to, to split the convention. that up. Let's for the convention. clear for folks. Yeah. yeah exactly. And, and move the petitions for the nomination papers for presidential uh, candidates all the way at the beginning and they gave the papers out the weekend right before New Year's Eve to cut the time we have to get signatures. Then we only had till the 11th, I think it came out on the 28th of December, and we had till January 11th to get them back in. One thing we noticed within one day, they had hundreds and hundreds of Biden signatures, but no one canvassed. No one around the city was canvassing. There was canvassing going on nowhere. And the first weekend we had, was the next weekend, which <laughs> ironically was January 6th. So most of the towns across the state had their signature parties on January 6th, which was, of course, covered in the news pretty negatively, which was something we enjoyed, though. But one of the things they did was the Biden signatures came almost immediately. None of our signatures were showing up on the Secretary of State's site. And then they immediately followed up by using the press and the Speaker of the House to go on the press and say, see, they can't get signatures for their candidates. 
These Republicans are useless. These Republicans can't even do their job. Meanwhile, we're collecting hundreds of signatures every single day. And we had four candidates we were collecting for. So we didn't need a thousand signatures. We needed 4,000 signatures. So one of the things we did was we, we told all our people as we went to the doors, please get signatures for all our candidates. The first one is we're Republicans. We're not Democrats. We don't keep people off the ballot. That's the first reason. The second reason is these four candidates came to the Republican Party and asked us to collect signatures for them. So we felt honored, bound to go do that. The third way we, we, we kind of stopped the chicanery is we let everyone know that you need to sign all of these. If we're going to protect any one of the candidates or all of the candidates by getting signatures on everybody's sheet, even if you have to hold your nose <laughs> for some of these signatures, we do that because when they deny a signature for you know who they try to Donald Trump off the, off the, the ballot by he tried it already the state to keep him off to the courts that didn't work. So by denying signatures and just cutting out signatures in the end, they could probably keep him off the ballot. So we had people sign everybody, including some of their own darlings like Chris Christie and Nikki Haley. So if they accept a signature from them and then the same sheet of paper or the next sheet of paper, but in the same time and date, they have a signature for Donald Trump. They can't remove that without us having a legal battle that we'd actually win. So we, we, we actually, the strength in numbers, we use all four signatures to protect each other. Which is a beautiful strategy. And really, it's a strategy that should be replicated across the country. And again, let me just reiterate it so folks understand what you did. Because you knew that Donald Trump signatures were going to be challenged, and they were going to try to throw them off and say that they were invalid and that he didn't get enough signatures to be on the ballot in the Rhode Island primary, you collected signatures from the same person for all four candidates. You had them sign four separate nomination papers, one for each candidate, and encouraged. And that way, that way, if they did say, oh, oh, this person, that's an invalid signature for Trump, but they accepted it for the other three candidates, that's right. prima facie evidence of chicanery right there. And that's something you could take to the court. It's that that's kind of forward thinking and yeah. expecting Democrats to do what Democrats do and mm -hmm. guarding against it, that's the kind of strategy we need nationally at the Republican Party. Yeah, I, I think if you just expect it's gonna happen and then you proactively kind of figure ways around it, uh, that's how we're gonna get ahead. Otherwise, we're always gonna be playing catch up with the games. And that's my biggest problem with the Republican Party institutionally is that it's always reactive. It never sets the agenda, it never steps out. It never goes out and says, we have the authority to do this. I was trying desperately to get the word to Governor Ron disappoints us in Florida in February of 2021 to stop, to order the counties to stop pushing mask mandates. And the answer I got back was, well, we don't know that he has that authority. You don't know that he doesn't. He actually does have that authority. And he actually exercised that authority, Joe, in December after the mask mandates stopped being a thing. So he took bold action after yeah. the horse had already run the race. And that's my problem with the Republican Party. Go out, exercise your authority, and make them sue you saying you don't have the authority. Republicans well, need to start acting more like Democrats. The Democrats now, just like with the gun laws, all these magazine bans and various other bans that have been passing across the, the states, uh, in blue states, that is, uh, when the Supreme Court or the federal judges say these are unconstitutional, they just ignore them. They say, 
well, we're waiting for the Supreme Court to give us a phone call and tell us to cut it out. Until that happens, we're going to keep doing it. That's what we're having in Rhode Island. And so uh, even though the Supreme Court has already thrown out some of these bans, they're still against the law. It's Yeah, they snidely say, how many divisions does the Supreme Court have? Well, more likely just say when they call us and tell us to stop, we'll stop. Yeah. Well, my governor, Kathy Hochul, threw a toddler temper tantrum, which Democrats have that move patented. And she said, okay, so you're going to invalidate our gun registration law? And she got the legislature to pass even more restrictive gun registration laws. Sheriffs have to go back three years on your social media. So you've got to provide all your social media accounts on your gun license. And they they make them put the gun serial numbers on their FID, their, their license card, which is a blatant constitutional violation. And they don't care. So they're yeah. getting sued again. And my hope, Alan, is that by overstepping, the court's mm-hmm. not going to look too kindly for being right. flipped off like that by, by a governor. And I'm hoping that they will rule, great, constitutional carries the law of the land. End of discussion. That'll be great. But what we need first, we're going to need to have an executive branch who will actually enforce these laws at the Supreme Court, not the, the, the laws they push, but actually they repeal some of the laws that are, are uh, that are made. And the executive branch needs to enforce it with the states. The problem is they're, they don't care. The state's just, just ignoring the Supreme Court now. And it's not like the Supreme Court has their own uh, army to go out there and enforce the laws. That is done to the executive branch. Well, exactly. And what we need until we get that executive and legislative branch that is going to do the right thing and actually draft proper laws, we need citizens with the courage to violate the law, as we were talking about before, an unjust law you have no moral obligation to obey. We need citizens that are going to disobey the law, get arrested, and then appeal all the way to the Supreme Court and have the Supreme Court repeatedly slap down these convictions. Yeah. Luckily, right now, even in Rhode Island, we have uh, pretty good chiefs who are saying, hey, listen, we're not going to be uh, banging on doors and, and inspecting your your rifles and inspecting your handguns. We're, we're, it's been okay. It hasn't. We haven't seen a glut of uh, vile Fourth Amendment violations. But uh, we're in the new season right now. The new session has just started. We don't even know if they're going to try to throw at us with the gun bills. They tried last year. They didn't even make it out of committee. But here we are with another season, a session. But whether or not they uh, hold back because of it's an election year, and it gives us a chance to uh, get some people in there to fight back. But uh, we called for an inspector general, and uh, we did a. Uh, we started off the year on January second with a uh, uh, press conference at the state house, calling for an inspector general. We're one of the, would make us one of thirty six other states that have inspector generals, and we're one of the most corrupt states in the whole country. That they would have a field day. I was just thinking, nineteen eighty one, I think it was when Massachusetts had the first inspector general. Uh, right. I think it cost about eighty thousand uh, dollars for a salary, and they were making a big thing of it. But in nineteen eighty-one dollars, I think he recovered one point seven million dollars in eighty-one dollars uh, back. So he's he made his money back pretty quickly. And I think if we did that, we'd probably collect hundreds of millions of dollars in Rhode Island. Absolutely, and let's yeah. hope that that happens. Alan, thank you for keeping us informed of all the goings on in Little Rhodey, and keep fighting the good fight. Yes, We're sir. Hear next. From your chairman, Joe Powers, the chairman of the Rhode Island Republican Party. You're listening to The Reckoning on TNT. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature 
even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands, heal our waters, and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. But every day we lose more of the places we love, and we urgently need to save endangered lands, waters, and wild species. The actions we take today will determine the tomorrow we leave to our children and grandchildren. The water they drink, the air they breathe, the beauty they experience. To learn more about how you can help protect and conserve our beautiful world, visit nature.org today. Even the thought of dementia can feel scary. It's why we put off getting help, even though we've noticed changes in our thinking or memory. But an early diagnosis can change everything, giving you medical help and a support system around you to help you live better. Start with Dementia Australia's online checklist. Because the sooner you know, the more you can do. Welcome to The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Joe Powers is one of the people that Alan Myers encouraged to get involved in politics. And Joe ran the first political race he ever ran for was chairman of the Rhode Island Republican Party. And he won, upsetting party faithful and all the the blue-haired ladies and the the long and the tooth old men who are waiting for somebody whose turn it was joe how dare you step out of turn welcome back to the reckoning thanks sam glad to be here you know that's one of the things that i always chafed about with the gop is that they were running it like the garden club and you know you work your way you do all the committee work and whatnot and then you're you're the vice president or vice chairman or whatever the position's called and you put in your time and then eventually it's your turn and you become the leader regardless of whether you have leadership ability or not and and that's the way the gop was we had to have bob dole as the nominee in 1996 because it was his turn we had to have uh, mccain in 2008 because it was his turn we, we got to get away from this idea that people get the leadership position just because it's their turn. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And again, thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's uh, I'm all about the leadership side of things as people who, who can step into the role should step into the role. I don't think that there should just be a simple line of succession, if you would, and just being handed a baton to do things in a particular way. And uh, we've made a couple of changes here in Rhode Island too that have uh, kind of shake a couple of the trees a little bit where we're talking about our job is to recruit candidates, proper candidates. Um, we're, we're looking at quality right now, not quantity. And uh, we're actually going to start our interview process as far as candidates are concerned. It's difficult to find candidates, but when we do find somebody, we're going to make sure they're a solid person. They got leadership qualities. They they have speaking abilities and and they can think on their feet and and, and roll with the punches when need to and also attack if they have to. Yeah, one of your great finds was Neil Capallo, who was on the show with you last time. She's a phenomenal candidate. What is she running for this time? She ran for Senate last election. What's she doing now? I, I don't know if I've gotten a commitment uh, from her as far as what she's running for just yet. I don't know. I only have four people who have announced their candidacy as of yet. So, and she isn't one of them. So, 
You know, actually, in in January, that makes me happy. One of the things I've hated to see over my lifetime in politics is this expansion of the, particularly at the presidential level, the expansion of the campaign season. It used to be that nobody paid attention uh, really until the primaries came around. And that's when candidates got involved. Some candidates even declared after a few primaries had been held, primaries weren't as as big to, then as they are today. It was all about the convention back then, whereas now the convention is kind of a rubber stamp pro forma <laughs> type thing. Uh, but people, they always said people didn't pay attention to politics until after Labor Day. So you really had September and October to campaign hard. And uh, we've gotten away from that. I guess it's an archaic notion, just like the notion that presidents shouldn't campaign in themselves and run a Rose Garden campaign and just send out surrogates. Although I guess Joe Biden kind of brought that back in 2020, didn't he? <laughs> Yeah, he did. And I'll tell you, I, I, it's it's ironic that people talk and complain about how polarizing, you know, politics is nowadays, but at least it's waking people up and they're paying attention to it even more. I, I did run for statewide Senate last year, but like Alan, I got into the into the race very late uh, getting into this. However, this time we were making sure we had people who are out in front um, and, and, you know, long before they should be declaring, because we don't have to declare here in Rhode Island until June. And then the right. election is in November. So people have right up until the end of June to actually file their paperwork. However, we're pushing to get people trained up now. We've already had multiple training classes for candidates to get people outspoken. Our whole idea is to create a message and a platform where there's more of us saying the same stuff as compared to a lot of individuals screaming, you know, nonsense in, in different directions. Nobody pays attention to that. So we're trying to do it in unison to make sure we have that quality candidate, candidates, I should say, all speaking in unison and, and trying to drive the same message and go in the same direction. Yeah, that messaging discipline is so important. It's one of the things I admire the Democrats for is, that, you know, they <laughs> infuriating <laughs> though it is at times, they stick to message uh, better than anybody I've ever seen. And and I'm sorry, I did forget that you had that statewide race under your belt for, for Senate before, uh, or the race for state Senate <laughs> under your belt before you ran for chairman of the Rhode Island GOP. Yeah. But it, it it's great that you're committed to growing the roster because too many Republican parties think, well, you know, if somebody wants to run, they run. If they don't want to run, they don't want to run. But really, that's one of the main value adds that a state party can have is is candidate recruitment. Yeah, it's and you know something instead of sitting around waiting for somebody to come to you, going out to the people to find that person, it just makes it more impactful. I have one meeting already, an interview, if you would, this week with somebody to to run. And it's okay that you forgot I ran for state Senate last year. I lost that one. So I'm, I'm, I, I forgot about it too. But it's going out and trying to find that right person. <clears throat> it's just going to make it a more powerful candidate instead of sitting around and waiting to see what happens. What we want to make sure that we do, like I said, is look for that person are persons that are going to be able to step up and have that conversation. They're not afraid to talk about certain things, but they know when to hold them, know when to fold them. You know, Kenny Rogers said it right. And really, when you've got a party that has limited resources such as yours, it's important to know that money is going to be well spent if you back candidate A. And right now in Rhode Island, the situation is you're lucky to have one good candidate. Hopefully, you know, to get to the point where you've got two or three and let, let them fundraise for themselves, let them fight for, you know, their own battles. 
but right now it's so important because there have been traditionally, in, not just in Rhode Island, but in Massachusetts, all throughout New England, even here in New York State, there are so many people running unopposed, incumbents running unopposed. It's it's just not healthy for the republic. No, it's it's definitely something that needs to be pushed back on. And too many people just kind of rely on the same old, same old. They just let the same thing happen over and over again. And having those people that want to step up to actually fill the roles in it, I, I do put it on you know, the party itself as a whole to be the ones to fill those positions. Um, it, New England is notorious as New York is as well as is having potholes and we can go around and have our potholes in our streets all day long. It's going to destroy everybody's cars. Well, we're destroying our communities right now with the amount of potholes we have. And if we don't get out and fill those potholes ourselves, nobody else is going to do it. You can't rely on somebody else to take care of it. But I will say this, Tim, um, you know, I, I learned in politics one very simple lesson. When somebody comes up and tells you in politics, you know what you need to do. They really mean that. They mean you. They don't mean them. They're not going to step up and do it. So it's our right. job to find the people that are willing to do it. That's what we're working on now. And, and Alan's been... Uh, a, a huge proponent to that. We've been had a great relationship. I think I almost talk to him more often than I speak to my wife uh, on a weekly basis when we're talking and strategies and, and things. So it's worked out well. That's one of the things I'd never seen a position of chair of chairs before. And that <laughs> is something unique about the Rhode Island GOP. And I think it can be very effective with the right guy in there, which Alan clearly is. Yeah, he definitely is. You know, it's it's having that chain of command um, and it's not so much of somebody telling somebody what to do. It's somebody being able to delegate uh, information. You know, the, the chair of the state party carries a certain amount of weight, a certain amount of power. Each city and town is run independently of themselves. But to have that communication between the state party and the cities and towns um, it pays off in dividends because we 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 both have strengths, we both have weaknesses, and there's a really good yin to the yang. And it's not just necessarily myself and Alan. There are many other uh, cities and town uh, state chairs that are brand new that are all stepping up and doing it because we can only speak so much, we can only teach so much, we can only preach so much. If we don't get the right message out, nobody's going to follow through with what we need to get done. And I don't care how good anybody is, they can't get it done by themselves. We have to work they as can't. a team. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, I love Alan, but I'm happy he's on the hot seat, right? Because he's on the hot seat. <laughs> he's the guy that everybody goes to. And because of, by virtue of the structure, and for people that don't understand the structure, you've got your local GOP. Every town has its own GOP committee and GOP committee chairman. And they all report to Alan, who reports to Joe as chairman of the party. Joe has other people reporting to him as well. But all the, the local chairs can go to Alan to get their issue resolved. And it eliminates all the finger pointing. I can't tell you how frustrating it is trying to get in touch with somebody at the state party. And they say, oh, you know, that's that's Joe's job. And Joe says, no, that's Mary's job. And Mary says, no, you're going to want to talk to to Stephanie down the down the hall. And it's maddening. But in Rhode Island, you no longer have that because you got you got Alan Myers as the chair of chairs. And and he's the one that is uh, is responsive to all these state uh, these uh, town chairmen. 
Yeah. And, and you know, Tim, I, I, I don't take anything away from the, the, uh, the cities and towns. Obviously there are some people that could use a nice little fire lit under their tuchus on occasion here or there, but now does a really good job on it. But, you know, when I talk to Alan, we're both you know, discussing the different fires that each of us are putting out, you know, here, there and everywhere and how many people you've spoken to, but it's just about the communication. It really is. It's the support it's, it's following right. the 11th commandment from Ronald Reagan is, you know, don't speak ill of a party member, um, which is what we're trying not to do to get everybody in. It's just trying to corral the kittens, if you would. But, uh, you know, I told Alan, whatever help he needs, I'm here for because I have a PhD in lassoing jellyfish. So uh, I, we can do a pretty good job between his talents and my talents of of getting it done. And then where we can, we come up short, we have the other cities and towns, chairs that are stepped in and, and they're willing to to put up the fight as well. So it's a good combination. It really is. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating and you guys are getting the job done and, you know, results matter and, and, and you're yeah. getting them in, in really a short period of time. You've only been doing this less than two years, correct? Uh, less than a year, actually. Really? It's actually uh, March, March 25th of uh, last year is when I got voted in as chair. And it was less than a year prior to that, that I ran for Senate my first time in politics. Fantastic. And this is just proof of what we preach at MAGA Institute, that now is not the time to throw up your hands in frustration. Now is the time to roll up your sleeves and get to work. As Joe just said, too many people say what well, you need to do. It's like, well, who's this you, Kimosabi? <laughs> you've got you've got a great brain. You've got a mouth. You've got fingers that can dial a phone. Why don't you join us in the fight? One of the things I loved, Joe, was the strategy of getting signatures for all four presidential campaigns, regardless of whether people wanted to support them in the primary, getting their signatures for all four candidates is a bulwark against the uh, Secretary of State disallowing Trump's signatures. He can't disallow a signature on President Trump's petitions without also disallowing them on the other three. And, and you know, that sounds like way too much work for our, our good Democrat secretary of state there. Yeah. So we, we, we lined it up fairly well for everybody. And that was our strategy moving forward. Um, we, we couldn't have made it more simplistic. We had plenty of people out going door knocking. We had signature parties. I think I heard Alan mention earlier, on, on January 6th alone, we had 20 different signature parties happening across the state. And yes, it is only Rhode Island, but I spent an average of about four or five hours driving around the state, going from party to party, getting my own signatures and everything. But telling people that we're going to create our own uh, uh, proof of whose signature belongs to who, when we hand over four signatures on four separate sheets, you're proving that your signature is valid compared to the other. It validates the next one. And even when people said, I'm only signing for this one and I'm not signing for any others, I explain to them and I tell them, hey, it's your decision. Here's the reason why we're doing it. And almost every single one of them were like, you know what, that makes sense. And they would just do it. Uh, Alan liked to say they they held their nose when they did it. But you know what? We still got them to do it. And uh, the people rallied and, and made it happen. And we got... But for Trump alone, we needed a thousand. We got twenty five hundred, and even Chris Christie himself were like six, almost sixteen hundred signatures, and everyone else was over two thousand. So we did our job. And Alan mentioned that there was a little bit of chicanery down there at the Secretary of State's office. Within a couple hours of the petition window being open, all of a sudden Joe Joe Biden had all the petitions he needed signed. Uh, how do you think that was executed? Well, you know, I I did see reports of, first off, uh, them having a pretty large contingency of people who were going 
out and getting signatures. Um, they did post a bunch of photos showing them of doing that. Where exactly they went, I don't know. But I mean, Tim, let's let's be honest. When you are needing a thousand signatures for one person, um, it's not that difficult of a task. Yeah, that's not a heavy have, lift, especially right. for especially a presidential you, presidential race. I mean, a thousand signatures—that's something that local people have to go get. Sure. Yeah, and and you know, and when you have. Um, when you have the political power that the Democrats have in Rhode Island, they've had for the last 80 years, you've got a lot of people that are able to go out and get the signatures. How and where and why, I don't know. And and we were working folk in the Republican Party. You know, it was during the week. We had, you know, uh, media that we were doing all week long. We were setting up for parties and such. And at the bitter end, we actually, we pulled it out and we, we did what we needed to do. It was a 72 hour stretch. I think I probably got about six hours worth of sleep. Um, just trying to get everything finished and we did it. Yeah. Elbow grease and, and hard work wins the day. It's just, it's funny to me and you're right. The machine is, is big and powerful there in, in Rhode Island, the Democrat machine. And, it, and yeah. it's not to imply that the signatures weren't uh, valid, but what was interesting is how all of a sudden they're accepted and the fake narrative went out over all the news channels. Oh yeah, the Republicans can't even can't even get signatures organized. They're completely in disarray. It's like it's like how the media always portrays Congress as being in chaos when actually they're operating exactly the way the Constitution wants Congress to operate. Well, I'll tell you, Tim, and uh, and being in the business world, more importantly, and in, in advertising as I had been, um, I kind of played on that. I'm not going to lie. I, uh, I I knew that they would come after us negatively. They always did. They always do. Um, I was um, head down, nose to the grindstone for those 72 hours. But I literally did one very simple thing as I sent out an email. And it was one email that basically said, we're in trouble. We need help. That's all I needed to say. And as soon and as I said that, all of the press we were trying to get to to promote the parties we were having, none of that went out. But the moment I said that we were in trouble, it went everywhere. It went viral. It was nationwide, actually. We had people like Scott Pressler reaching out to us, and he says, hey, can I help? And we're like, yeah, if you like to. We're kind of like playing Mickey the Dunce, like, oh, sure. yeah, sure. If you're able to, that'd be great. And within, I was in my headquarters, and uh, we probably, Probably had about four to six hundred people come in the door and all came in and just started signing and signing and signing and signing away. And they're all like, I wish I knew about this. And I'm like, and and my executive director was the first one to say it. He goes, Who knew that doing a negative email would promote this much? I said, I just knew they would because that's yeah. just the way it is. You know, they're gonna go after the negative stuff. You're an idiot. And he's like, You gotta worry about the pushback. I said, I'm I'm a big boy. I'm a big boy with thick skin. Let him blame me. Let him say that I screwed up. I don't care. We got the job done. A win is a win. Whether you win by one or a hundred, it doesn't matter. We won. We got it and done. Folks, that right there is leadership. That's the hallmark of a leadership. Joe Powers, what he said, what he did. He knew he was going to take the slings and arrows and he didn't care because it was going to help him get the job done. That's one of my favorite New England expressions, Joe, Mickey the dunce. I always have to explain it to people. I explained it to a friend out in Ohio. He's like, what's this Mickey the dunce stuff? It's like, well, <laughs> it's like Tom Sawyer. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you've got the skills necessary to whitewash that fence. Joe, it's been a great session. Thanks again. Thanks for all you're doing in Rhode Island. Folks, go to at R-I-G-O-P chairman. Follow Joe on X. Find out what they're doing and find out how you can help, not just in Rhode Island, but in your community as well. 
That's it for tonight's Reckoning. Stay tuned on TNT Radio for the Havorier Morris Show. I'm Timothy Shea. Until next time, God bless you. God bless these United States. Keep fighting the good fight.